Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Anti-Genocide Coffee Break, a multinational podcast. I am your host, Alisa von jürgen Forgi, and I am here with my co-host, Irene Victoria Massimino, and our technical producer is Rafi Zarzatian. We are very honored and excited to be joined today by Louise Wynn Stanley, the Program and Advocacy Manager of AB Columbia in the UK. We will be discussing today the ongoing crisis, conflict, and peace initiative in Colombia. So welcome, Louise. We are so happy you're here with us. Thank you very much, Elisa. I'm really pleased to be with you as well. Thank you. And I'm going to hand the podcast over to Irena now, who will be giving a longer biography. Thank you, Elisa. Thank you. Hello to everyone. And thank you, Luis. It's such a pleasure to see you uh, after so long. I've known Luis for a very long time. She was my boss at AV Colombia long ago, and I very much enjoy working with her. So Luis, as Elisa mentioned, is the program uh, an advocacy manager at AB Colombia, and she's been working in this role since 2010. She previously worked as a advocacy of officer for Peace Brigades International in the UK section. Before this, she spent two years in Colombia working as an international observer with PBI, Peace Brigades International. She has an MC MSc in Globalization and Latin America Development. She's the author of AB Colombia's reports and has contributed to a book on unarmed resistance and global solidarity. Luis has worked on the issues of human rights and sustainable development in Colombia since 2003. Thank you, Luis. I don't think this small bio gives uh, credit actually to the amount of work you do every day for Colombia. So I, I wanted to ask you and I wanted our audience to hear a little bit more about you, about your experience and your work in Colombia with PBI, which is such an interesting organization, and also with AB Colombia. Okay, well, thank you very much, Irina. I don't know if your guests uh, or audience are going to agree with you, but anyway, <laughs> I'll fill them in a little bit. <laughs> well... PBI is really a very interesting organization, I must say. Uh, it's an organization that provides unarmed accompaniment to human rights defenders who are at risk because of the work that they do. And uh, I joined them in 2004 in Colombia and worked there for two years. And uh, well, I had a, a variety of experiences and I certainly learned a great admiration for the people that we accompanied because mm -hmm. every day they put their lives on the line in order to protect the rights of other people. And so I traveled with lawyers who went out to situations where there'd been um, a massacre, for example, and to get there we had to walk um, for about four hours in, in mountainous territory to get there in an area where if you didn't know where to walk, you would find there were landmines as well. Uh, so, yeah, so one of yeah. the uh, community leaders would always come and meet us and guide us through the paths that they knew to be safe. But of course, uh, landmines could have been sown at any moment in time, really. So equally, they took a big risk coming to pick us up. Mm -hmm. And the reason they had to go there was because they needed to investigate the scene if they were to understand what had happened and document what had happened. Mm -hmm. 
And in that particular area of Colombia, there have been many uh, extrajudicial executions in the style of what they called false positives, which is where uh, ordinary farmers were killed and dressed up as um, as FARC guerrilla, and they were registered as being killed in combat. And so this was a, a major problem there. But that's just one example. There were many, many human rights defenders covering all sorts of areas. And it was a tremendous privilege to accompany them in that kind of, in that work, really. And then um, I moved on to work in, uh, in uh, PBI in London covering a variety of their projects, uh, explaining to governments what was happening in the different countries from the information passed on to us by uh, the international observers in, in country. And finally, working with AB Columbia, which is basically, it brings together five major organizations, uh, Christian Aid, CAFOD, uh, SCIAF, TROCRA, uh, and Oxfam. Uh, all of them have projects in Colombia, and they're basically the main British and Irish agencies that are working there. And my job is to bring the voice of those who are most marginalized in Colombia into the international arena. And I do that by working, by bringing, by advocating with the British government, the Irish government, the EU, and the UN, both in Geneva and now at the Security Council since uh, the signing of the peace accord, when a UN Security Council mission of verification was appointed. So, just that's to, wonderful. To not to cut you, Luis, but I wanted to ask you about uh, human rights defenders and their situation in Colombia. Uh, we always hear that, in, particularly in Latin America, Mexico and Colombia are one of the most dangerous countries for human rights defenders. Is that continues to be the situation in Colombia? Yes, we are really very concerned. Since the signing of the peace accord, we've seen a, uh, an increase in the killing of human rights defenders to the point that last year, in just a 12-month period, 177 human rights oh, defenders wow. were killed in Colombia. Yeah, and that was about 53%, I think, of all the human rights defenders killed in the world. So over 50% of them oh, were wow. killed in Colombia. Oh my gosh! Those numbers give yeah. a perspective. And yes. So Yes, they do. And many of these are, are human rights defenders in particular that are working on the implementation of the peace accord. So uh, in doing that, they also encounter many people or many armed groups who are against the implementation of the peace accord. And that, that's part of the problem, really. So yes, yeah, so we are very concerned about uh, the situation there. and. Um, we, one of the mechanisms that was a point that was uh, set up as a result of the peace agreement is a commission called the National Commission on Security Guarantees. Mm -hmm. And the National Commission on Security Guarantees was mandated to develop policies to dismantle the neo-paramilitary groups. Basically, these these are the groups that mainly attack and kill human rights mm -hmm. defenders and attack communities are uh, exercising social control in the in the rural areas um, and this is a very uh, very important commission because inside of that mandate is also a direction that they must um, 
set up policies that will lead to the investigation and prosecution of the intellectual authors and the financiers, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So in 2005, there was a demobilization process of the paramilitary groups. But the mistake they made there was they never tackled this issue of the intellectual authors mm-hmm. um, and financiers behind the groups. And so they very quickly re-emerged. And those are the paramilitary groups that are operating today and growing in number and particularly dangerous within the rural areas. And unfortunately, in recent years, we sort of had a bit of a holiday period where they weren't uh, identified as working um, uh, in in the same level of collusion with the armed forces as they had been previous to the Mm -hmm. peace Mm -hmm. accord. But in recent years, we've seen a big resurgence of this and a lot more reports of collusion between the army and the the neo-paramilitary groups. Mm. So that is very concerning because it leaves, especially the rural, this is in uh, the rural areas. It's not right across Colombia, but it's in the rural areas and only it's uh, not in all of the rural areas, but in the ones where there's the highest and most intense levels of conflict. So it leaves the the rural population without anybody to turn to. Mm. So Mm. uh, just an example of that is that um, we work a lot with the Catholic Church in in Mm -hmm. Colombia, obviously, because it's something all And one of the bishops was telling me that they were working quite closely in this very rural town with people. And one of the women... um, had come to share what had happened to her, which would be, had been violation of her rights by the illegal armed groups. And they convinced her that it was really important to go and denounce this to the police. And they went with her and supported her. 24 hours later, well, within 24 hours even, it wasn't even 24 hours, she had a phone call to her mobile phone saying that they knew she denounced it, all of the details. Wow. And they told her if she didn't leave, she would be killed. Mm-hmm. So that kind of collusion mm-hmm. just really removes altogether any kind of protection for, for people in the local areas. And those people, they rely on protection from the church, from international organizations, national civil society organizations. It's the only kind of protection they see that they have, really. May I jump in with a, with a question? And I'm sorry for my ignorance on this, but the neo-paramilitaries... Who do they represent largely? Um, so, because there's so many different armed groups, right, in Colombia, who are the neo-paramilitaries historically? Like, what groups in society do they represent? So, um, basically, they're far-right paramilitary far right. groups. Okay. Yes. Yes, sorry, because uh, I forget that some, we always know, if, when we talk yes. about guerrilla, we're talking about left, yes. left-wing left groups. Right. And when mm-hmm. we talk about paramilitary, we're talking about right, but right. that's not always the case mm-hmm. <laughs> everywhere. It's true, it's not always so, the case. Yes, I get told off for this in <laughs> Ireland because they always say they were all mm-hmm. called paramilitary groups. You right. have to define them. <laughs> Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, and also, uh, well, they they grew up originally uh, because of FARC, uh, well, guerrilla, not just FARC, but guerrilla attacks against um, uh, agricultural, uh, the agricultural elite, really. And they basically built up their own private armies, and these armies were often trained by by the military as well. Mm. and they committed some of the most horrific 
horrific human rights violations in Colombia. And um, yeah, so that's basically how they grew up and they continue to now, even today, to be protecting those rights. So things like uh, where there was a massive forced displacement of communities uh, and people are trying to reclaim their land now under the land restitution law, they're, they're being forced to displace again by these groups very often. Uh, the, the the people who moved, the large landowners who moved in and took their land don't wish to give it back. And so that, that is continues to be a problem in Colombia. Yeah. Wow. And they're very much against the peace the peace accords. So very much aligned with those who, who, who did not support the signing of the peace accord. And so that's why it becomes very dangerous when you start to engage in the implementation of that accord. They're often very much involved with drug trafficking as well and other illicit economies like illegal gold mining, etc. So, wow. yeah. Louise, I, I wanted to ask you then before we move on to the peace accord, something that relates a bit to what you said and Elisa's question. What is the relationship of the paramilitaries with the crime recognized as the genocide against the patriotic union, you know, the Union Patriotica, um, the political party? Yes, well, that was, yes, exactly. The Union Patriotica basically was. Um, what happened was there was a, uh, a p uh, some peace talks in with Belisario uh, Betancourt, the mm -hmm. president, uh, in 1982. And when they signed this agreement with the FARC, um, it was to transform the guerrilla into a political party and to make their political system more competitive. Mm -hmm. So the FARC formed the Union Patriotica and uh, in the mid-80s uh, they got elected uh, their, their politicians got elected mainly to local authorities, to mayor, mayors, governor's offices, mm -hmm. all, all of the local institutions. But some were elected at the national level, but it was a very small amount. But then uh, they started to be killed off, and it was the paramilitary groups that were doing mm -hmm. the, the, kill, the killing of these candidates because they were seen as left-wing, they were seen as related to the guerrilla group, and so they became targets. And there was what what is called a genocide um, mm -hmm. of the uh, of the um, Union Patriotica. Sorry, mm -hmm. I was just trying to. Yes, yeah, so they called it a deliberate policy of political murder, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, mm -hmm. somewhere be the, the numbers vary, but somewhere the lowest numbers you'll see recorded are around two thousand. The highest mm -hmm. number are around five thousand members of the Union Patriotica. And they took this case before the Inter-American Court, of course, mm -hmm. um, asking for a ruling on, on a political genocide. Mm -hmm. Certainly. And I so think yes, internally, yes, I think internally as well, Colombia recognized it in the courts as genocide. Um, I think, right, Luis? I think it was maybe 2013. I can't remember exactly. But the idea was to eliminate the group as... Uh, the political group. As a political party. Mm -hmm. as, yes, a political as a political party. party. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And yes. how is the... Uh, sorry. No, please, go ahead, Luis. No, no, it's okay, it's okay. No, I, I was going to ask you how is the, um, the situation now with the implementation of the peace process? I mean, I wanted to highlight that the scenario of Colombia is so complex and there are so many armed actors 
whose interests have changed over time as well, and then the drugs coming into as a as the land situation, the political situation as well. It's Colombia was uh, well continues to be uh, a country where there is a land oligarchy, right, and uh, there is a need for a land a deep land reform, but also where there. Are few political parties now maybe opening up a little bit more but in that very complex scenario how is the peace process evolving well um wh what i have to say is that um i suppose if you look at uh, look at it just over time it's probably easiest to see mm -hmm. what's happening so after the signing of the of the peace accord uh, initially um it was put to a referendum and unfortunately mm -hmm. that referendum came back no and that's mm -hmm. had implications for its implementation throughout the whole process mm -hmm. so it's important to bear this in mind when it was revised and then finally signed um, in September 2016 what it meant for the peace accord was that it slowed the whole process down of translating the agreements into law because no, what would have happened is that the whole lot would automatically have been trans, you know, the laws would have been written, they would automatically have passed through the Congress. But as a result of the no vote, um, but many of the uh, laws were debated and there were changes that were tried to be brought about as it was going through Congress. Because, of course, in Congress, there was quite a section who had been behind the no vote. So the Central Democratic Party were behind the no vote, led, led the whole campaign for it. And so as these laws passed through Congress, the whole process was slowed up. So you had a very fast uh, laying down of arms. The FARC moved immediately into the, the um, demobilization zones, but the actual uh, act, enactment into law of the rest of the agreement was, was very slow. Um, as you mentioned land, uh, there's a very important uh, first chapter on land reform. Mm -hmm. And one, one of the very important aspects of this chapter that was, uh, that was uh, designed to be implemented uh, straight off and as rapidly as possible was something called um, development zones for territorial development zones. Sorry, I was translating it in my head. And they're known mm -hmm. as PEDETs. <laughs> and these pedets, um, the idea was an integrated approach to a muni at municipality level where you would um, bring in uh, the institutions that were needed by the state, you would bring in health, education, mm -hmm. uh, create tertiary roads, uh, stimulate the local economy and provide a crop substitution program for the illicit mm -hmm. crops. Now these mm -hmm. were 170 municipalities most impacted by the conflict. Uh, so the, they'd experienced a really intense conflict. They experienced really intense poverty in those areas, which is why many of them had actually turned to illicit crops. So mm -hmm. because, um, yeah. And there was no roads because that's the other reason. Anything that they grew, they couldn't get out commercially. So this was the idea that they would really focus on uh, the implementation of these. It set off at a very good pace. Um, 
but a good pace is set off at a pace that you can only take when you have to consult at the local level, which means everything does get slowed down. But at least when uh, President Santos was leaving office, which unfortunately was a very short time, it's about, um, I can't remember how many, uh, it's about a year and a half after uh, the signing of the accord. Uh, at least the consultations at a local level had taken place and the project plans were being drawn up. And they'd also started to implement the crop substitution programs. So you saw that people felt in the regions that things were actually moving and changing because the consultations were happening, crop substitution was starting to come in. But once you change government and the Central Democratico mm -hmm. Party took over and you had a new president, things really did slow down in that area. And um, although the pedets are still being implemented, one of the difficulties is they're not being implemented in an integrated way. So it's not about that municipality really being transformed, which was the idea behind it. Um, you might get infrastructure being designed and developed right across the country or housing designed and developed. But the problem is, is that there's no integration of that. And the same problem, well, a different sort of problem, but a lack of coordination for the crop substitution programs meant that whilst families were eradicating the crops and expecting to get the uh, commercial products for um, to, you know, the alternative products for, to be able to commercialize, that that was all disjointed and uh, many of them had to wait a long time. And of course, that level of poverty, mm -hmm. you, you can't afford to yes. wait, wait that time. So, so there's been several problems. Um, that just gives you a snapshot of, of one aspect, mm -hmm. really. But there are there are several problems with the implementation being so slow. And slow it, where you've seen People, uh, community leaders particularly being killed is in the crop substitution programs, those who've been leading those crop substitution programs. Mm. And um, so the slow implementation, the fact that actually what's happened is that there's a ceiling for the number of, it appears that there is a ceiling for the number of people who've been taken on mm -hmm. it. The fact that it's not concentrated to ensure that everybody in the municipality is able to access it means that you can have one a uh, person who's cultivating an alternative crop next to somebody who's still growing coca, Illegal. which produces yes. mm -hmm. yeah, it mm -hmm. produces violence in those areas. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the introduction, well, uh, with this new government, they're introducing forced eradication, and they're also talking about trying to bring. Well, they're trying to bring, not talking about. They are actually trying to bring back um, eradication using glyphosate, which had been mm -hmm. outlawed under Santos. Yes. So, so you're actually exacerbating violence in these areas, which is another reason why many of the leaders are being killed. So, so this this is some of the difficulties that are, that are being faced. Uh, so that's kind of microcosm. Um, in terms of which, uh, I think transitional justice mechanisms have all been implemented and uh, they are functioning very well but not necessarily in an uncritical environment so the, there have been quite a lot of attacks on the transitional justice system uh, political attacks mm -hmm. I should say so um, 
and that's a very that's very negative it makes their work much more difficult but they've really moved forward even during this pandemic with it and the truth commission report is due out uh in mm. in september or november i've forgotten the months no in november of this year it's due mm -hmm. out um and then uh the special jurisdiction for peace um is going to continue with the what they call the macro cases, which they're taking through uh, the, the legal system. So, um, or the courts that are part of the transitional justice uh, process. Uh, and those have been really moving very quickly as well. So if you look on that side of things, it's very positive, mm -hmm. although not without operating, not without its problems really. Mm. Certainly, Louise. I have a well, quite a, a lot of questions, but I, I wonder always what is the economic interest in perpetuating the conflict? And you mentioned at the beginning, you know, business and human rights, and I know you work a lot on it because I work with you on that. But uh, and I know you pressure a lot the the UK government in order to have this human rights uh, clauses included in whatever agreement. Uh, comes up with Colombia, but how how is that perceived at the moment? How how is it? How does it have evolved? This financial interest in perpetuating the conflict inside Colombia or benefiting? I, I I'm not sure whether in perpetuating, but at least who's benefiting from the conflict at the moment, and what's the situation with this business, you know, and human rights? Okay, so uh, well, basically. Um, I suppose what, one of the problems is if you look at, uh, for example, um, multinational corporations, mm -hmm. is that they those involved in the areas of of mining, of extractives, etc., are the ones which create the greatest uh, tensions and also the most conflict at the local area. And that's partly because very often they're, they're well, as well, they're very, very often in territories of, excuse me, of indigenous peoples or peasant communities, etc. Mm -hmm. And impact uh, particularly on their livelihoods in those mm -hmm. areas. And when local communities try to uh, in, uh, try to um, take advantage of the laws that exist that protect their rights, that's when they find that they are very often threatened, etc. Now, that's not to say that it's the companies threatening them, but groups mm -hmm. like the paramilitary groups are the ones that are threatening them. During the conflict, many of these companies like Chiquita Brands, mm -hmm. um, which is a banana company mm -hmm. in, in industrial mm -hmm. agriculture, uh, mining corporations in Cesar, for example, um, they paid paramilitary groups. Now, their argument is that they paid these groups because they had no alternative, mm -hmm. that they were it was extortion. But alongside this kind of protection that these groups operated in those areas you found there was very high levels of killings of of community leaders uh, trade unionists um, populations were terrified uh, in those areas and um, the violence was particularly extreme 
Mm. So it, these links are quite strong in, in, in many areas of the country between between all of these elements. So, uh, yeah, so now you move into a peacetime, but even so, uh, there's still levels of threats against those, particularly environmental defenders who are working on large-scale projects. High levels of killings of environmental defenders as well. And although you can't sort of show that there are direct links between companies and, and um, those who are trying to defend their rights, one of the problems is, I think, whilst businesses say it is nothing is not a direct link, they're not in favour of it, they do very little to really stop this. So they need to be making very public pronouncements. They need to be uh, re reasserting people's rights. They need to be engaging with the local communities, but not in a way in which they are currently, which is often a very oppressive way, and which often they, and we've seen certainly with mining corporations where they actually generate conflicts within communities uh, that are not in favour of the mine by privileging certain people in terms of jobs or certain mm -hmm. communities. And though you can't prove it, there's often bribery yeah. involved, etc. as well. But what we see, the result of this, the result of the engagement is that there becomes conflict within the community then about the mine. Mm -hmm. So you mm. you have a situation where you need communities to engage with community uh, need uh, companies to engage with communities to validate their right to defend their rights to actually respond mm -hmm. to what their grievances are and to find solutions yeah mm -hmm. but this is not what's happening and mm -hmm. so this plays into then the conflict that's happening across the country in a very, very negative way uh, at all levels, really. Um, but beyond that, I have to say that Colombia has very good laws which offer free, prior, informed consent mm -hmm. to uh, Afro-Colombian and indigenous groups. But the UN has ruled that no company, well, they, they investigated a whole range of free, prior, informed consent processes, and they found that not one of them had been carried out properly. Mm -hmm. And so this is why it creates conflict, because in the beginning, they've tried to circumvent uh, the free, pride, informed consent process, laws laid down by the company, by the country. And so we've, we have seen things like, for example, I'll give you one example. They call the community to a meeting and then they provide them with refreshments and they say, can you sign your attendance? And then mm -hmm. they use this as a consultation uh. process. Mm. as consent yeah. wow mm. yeah and all they've wow. done is just tell them about the project so mm -hmm. people have started saying we don't even want to go to those meetings because if you go to those meetings they consider it that you've engaged in a, cons in a consultation process have a, yeah mm -hmm. so the constitutional court has been ha has had a very good reputation of upholding these rights but they've ruled in favor of many communities but those rulings have not been implemented. So, for example, there's a, a company, a coal mining company, uh, Cerrojón, which mm -hmm. is in uh, La Guajira, which is owned by um, BHP, Anglo-American, mm -hmm. and Glencore. There have been 
quite a few different constitutional court rulings, none of which have been implemented. And so communities feel really that they go to all this trouble of taking the situation that they're facing to the court. The court rules on it, but then it's not implemented. And so and they continue to be at risk for standing mm-hmm. up for their rights. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is really a very difficult difficult situation. In fact, um, right now there's an OECD complaint out against these three companies as a result of what's happening in uh, Serra Horn. So, but yeah, sorry. No, just as you're laying this out, one can see the complexities Mm -hmm. here and also the terrifying nature of power as it's operating in Colombia against the rights of um, indigenous and local communities. Um, It's terrifying. It reminds me of uh, the case in Ecuador against Chevron uh, brought by a U.S.-based attorney, Stephen Donziger, mm-hmm. who since then, because he won for the locals in 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 Ecuador, an environmental a class action lawsuit mm-hmm. based on environmental destruction, that he also considered a genocide. Um, because he won, he then became the focus of um, a campaign to discredit him. And he's now sitting in house arrest for accusations of having bribed a judge that Chevron made that there's just no evidence of that, but he's been disbarred. It has cost him millions mm-hmm. of dollars to defend himself. And now he's, and, and there've been some crazy um, hijinks within the US justice system um, in terms of organizing which judge will hear his case and his life has been pretty much ruined he continues to fight but he Mm -hmm. has a wife and a daughter and and this has taken a toll Mm -hmm. you know clearly on him and it's it's a huge injustice but it's because he went up against one of these huge multinational corporations um and through that exposed uh this close relationship between you know international multinational companies these kinds of paramilitary groups and and these strange um you know these strange tricks they play to uh, appear as if they're following the rule of law right like using a sign in sheet as as some kind of yes vote right on on a plan that that happened also in ecuador so I'm just wondering, I would love to hear more about how difficult it is to work in such a terrain yourself as your organization, because it seems to me that, at least in Steve Donziger's case, the fact that he was a U.S. citizen hasn't really, pro- it's protected him from assassination, I think, but it hasn't protected him from, um, you know, from, from attacks, more political and legal attacks. Yes, I mean, it's so terrible to hear that situation, to see somebody's life torn apart like that, really. And, um, well, for for me, it hasn't really, I can't say that it has affected me, because funnily enough, internationals have a level of protection, Mm. uh, especially in Colombia, that... um, is is very important for the yeah that we're very thankful for 
Uh, and that's one of the reasons why PBI can operate in Colombia, uh, because uh, internationals uh, are respected in that sense, but also because the Colombian government does want to have a good reputation in the international mm. arena, mm. and it wants to be, you know, you'll find it at all the high-level meetings. It's a key partner for many countries in terms of climate change, for example. It's the most, one of the most beautiful and biodiverse countries. Mainly, one has to say down to the fact that indigenous groups protect a huge range of this, uh, this country in terms of its biodiversity. And, um, and also some areas due to the conflict itself because they've been protected from roads going in, etc. because of the conflict. But of course, that, that could be a negative side of the peace process that everything starts to be opened up and so forests mm. uh, destroyed. Um, but yes, I mean, Colombia is, uh, is, doesn't want a bad reputation in terms of human rights. And so I think for, for that reason, um, there, there is a level of protection of... Uh, and here, in the situation that you're talking about, of course, it, it is a company. Um, but really, the, the uh, cases that have been brought up to now against many of the companies in Colombia, with the exception of Chiquita Brands, which was brought as... Um, I think I think it was a class action in the USA. So mm. yeah, yes, the aliens and that's contact. where it was really. Mm -hmm. That's Good. it. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's the one. Yes, yes. So uh, basically, that did reveal that they were paid paramilitaries, um, and also that a lot of uh, leaders in that area were getting killed. In fact, the area that you operated in in Uruba, you you found that uh, at night many people would be killed and then left out in the streets during the day for the morning oh. so that when it woke up you found the bodies in the streets oh to the God. extent that um, the, the international pressure became so great that uh, the Colombian government couldn't stand this pressure any longer and the word went out for these groups to stop this kind of killings because it, it was bringing such a bad reputation and um, so after that, killings became much more hidden, people disappeared. Um, but if you talk to communities in the Choco and Uruba region, particularly in Choco, they talk about how they used to see, um, they used to dismember bodies and throw them into the river. And so they would just see arms or legs or whatever of people floating down the rivers when I've talked to them. I mean, this is what terrified people into displacing before the paramilitary mm -hmm. groups even arrived. Was exactly. was this level of uh, violence? Yeah, well, brutality. Yeah, yeah. It, brutality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. But anyway, they, they. I sort of strayed from your question a bit, but I, I think that um, one of the main problems in Colombia is the fact that although the law continues to operate, in, in the sense that the constitutional court functions very well. Um, they have an amazing system called tutelas, whereby commun ordinary communities, if their fundamental rights are being violated, can take this to the constitutional court and they can rule on it. And so they have ruled against many companies. But it's after that that's the problem because they don't implement what's been ruled on. And so it becomes really difficult. Companies just continue to do what they have been doing and 
and communities feel that their their rights are constantly violated, even though they've got all these court decisions. Yeah. But certainly, bringing bringing these cases does bring threats of violence uh, and killings of leaders of of lawyers, etc. So, and particularly in the area of um, environmental rights, yeah. Mm. Wow. Also, Louise, I wanted to add that there is a lot also of stigmatization of, of many of the lawyers working uh, mm -hmm. for yeah, human rights defenders and human rights cases. They would, I recall when I was working with you that they would be uh, use wrong wrongfully used as communist, for example. They would be uh, negatively stigmatized mm -hmm. in different forms, even to community leaders, right? Yes, well, that that is a problem, and often, often it was by high-level officials in the mm -hmm. government as well, which of course gives a completely um, sort of open feel for people to attack or, exactly. or to feel that there there is a legitimacy behind mm -hmm. their attacking mm -hmm. of of, yeah. of uh, human rights mm -hmm. defenders, community leaders, etc. So. Um, this is, I mean, it's one of the things that um, the new special rapporteur on human rights defenders, Mary Lawlor, particularly mm -hmm. highlighted. And in the context of these um, uh, social protests, she highlighted how uh, indigenous leaders have been stigmatized and mm -hmm. this, this needed to be stopped because it was putting them in danger, mm -hmm. uh, huh. particularly in this context of the social protests in Colombia, because we were seeing excessive use of force by the police, mm -hmm. repression, etc. And by suggesting that in any way uh, these indigenous groups were, well, it was suggesting that they were armed when they were not armed, mm -hmm. well, that immediately puts them into immense danger when you've got the police who are, who are, who are armed. And also, um, in this particular situation in uh, Colombia, what we've seen is a, a lot coming out on the social media where people have have uh, filmed uh, men in plain clothes uh, in amongst the police with live ammunition firing at mm -hmm. the protesters yeah. oh in God. the paramilitary style that you often see in rural areas. It's not unusual to mm -hmm. see collaboration in rural areas, but where they're not, they've not been used to seeing it at all is in the, is in the cities. And mm -hmm. so it's quite been quite shocking to see some of this foot footage coming out, and very very worrying indeed. Uh, so um, yeah, so that I've, I've strayed from your point. You asked me, and I can't <laughs> even remember the question. No, oh, no, the, the, no, <laughs> no, that's fine. No, but it was Sorry. the stigmatization of people working for human rights in general not only the locals yeah. it happens a lot to the locals and you made it's, it's a good point yeah. that people that work in in human rights and are stigmatized then are are more of a target for for violence because there's this sort of idea that is legitimate because they're bad people somehow uh mm. simplifying yeah. the thought mm -hmm. well well during the uh well really b b during the conflict uh, before the signing of the peace uh, accord, very often lawyers were seen as the legal arm of the guerrilla when they had nothing to do with yes. the guerrilla at all. Yeah. They were completely mm -hmm. independent. Exactly. And so that, of mm -hmm. course, again, opened them up to... But the stigmatization does still continue, although it continues in a less... Um, how can I say? A less overt way, I think, sometimes. 
so uh, suggesting that, uh, well, mind you, I don't know, this is quite overt, really, suggesting that um, so the social protests are linked to the guerrilla groups, for example. Well, that, that once again opens up uh, mm -hmm. this kind of freedom of the police to treat people far more brutally because they're considered to be in some way trying to promote the area the, the um, ideas of these guerrilla groups when mm -hmm. it's been very clearly shown not I mean thousands of protesters right across the country mm -hmm. in, uh, in all sorts of cities a uh, whole range of people so it's it just doesn't make any sense to mm -hmm. classify them as representing the guerrilla in any in any way whatsoever so uh, yeah but it does it does it puts people's lives at risk uh, the, that kind of stigmatization what are can Irena um, maybe you were going to ask this I think what are the causes of the protests what are the protests about yes well the social protests were they were interesting well I suppose it's a little just a little step back I'm going to take and say that COVID and the pandemic um, had a massive impact mm -hmm. in Colombia so what we saw was that uh, people who were in poverty that was exacerbated mm -hmm. and we saw the middle classes becoming more impoverished yeah. so what you then had was a tax law which sparked off it wasn't the reason for, but it sparked off the social protests because the tax burden would have landed on the poorest and the middle classes. And they didn't see and actually exempted most companies. <laughs> so this, this was um, a real concern for people who are already impoverished and alongside the lack of implementation of the peace accord exacerbated poverty and a whole compendium of uh, grievances that, that civil society had had over recent years not least to say the failure to implement agreements made with previous social protests um, this trigger triggered protests right across the country because people are extremely unhappy about this situation that they're facing. Um, poverty, lack of mm -hmm. implementation of peace accord, rising violence in the rural areas, etc. So that's really what was behind the, the, um, the social protests. But maybe to sort of contextualize it, it's also important to understand that there was three major protests across the country in the last three years so in 2019 you had one uh, 2020 <laughs> another and this was the third one and what we saw was that in the first um, social protest that happened in 2019 one young man called Dylan Cruz was killed <laughs> by um, one of the riot police Esmad firing a rubber bullet, bullet directly at his head and uh, this killed him now that was an illegal action and there were in, in amongst that there was also again brutal repression of the of the social protests the UN said excessive use of force had been used etc uh, so that was the first protest the second protest that broke out there were 13 people killed um, large numbers again arbitrarily detained sexually assaulted um, in, seriously injured, etc. 
And so when this third protest broke out, it was an accumulation of that. And those mm -hmm. other protests had made agreements with the government which weren't implemented. So you, you've got this accumulation. So it's mm. important to understand it's yeah. not just in isolation, mm -hmm. these social protests. They have roots in, in other, uh, both in discontents, but also in the fact that um, uh, the, the agreements made in other protests had been implemented. And the fact that the, this connection of repression by the police was just growing. So this is one of the reasons why there's been a major call both um, nationally and internationally for police reform mm -hmm. because uh, well one thing to sort of highlight is that the police are under the Ministry of Defense and have been and have all through the conflict the conflict acted together with the with the army so the army and police both under the Ministry of Defense when you sign a peace agreement you really need a completely different kind of police force you need exactly. well i think you need mm -hmm. a police service right mm -hmm. not a police force you need a police service and that service is about serving uh, and protecting the rights of uh the citizens and having a completely different set of protocols to what the army would mm -hmm. have the army has a completely different role to play so um during the peace talks, it was one of the things that was impossible to talk about. It just there was just no way to find an agreement uh, about uh, the reforms that would be needed in terms of the security forces, which is fair enough. There are often some things that are too difficult in peace talks and negotiations. But we're now five years on from the signing of the peace accord. It's been their fifth anniversary mm -hmm. in September, and this constant repression of social protest in policing where you really in a country that's um, in a process of peace building you want to really encourage peaceful social protest and engagement of the protesters in order to put their grievances to a government in a way that isn't about conflict I mean mm -hmm. it's an important element I mean, you always hope that you don't get to social protest. You really want other uh, participative political spaces set up so you don't end up having to take to protest. But when you do, it is about, it's a peaceful manner of putting something before a government that people have legitimate grievances that are not being met. And so you definitely mm -hmm. don't want this kind of repress repressive policing. And very interesting, the special jurisdiction for peace, the transitional justice process mm -hmm. for, for Colombia, they, they uh, made a statement saying that um, there should be a police reform because um, you, what you were seeing was a repetition of what had happened during the conflict. And part of, of, of um, transitional justice was to ensure that there was no repetition of what had happened mm. during the conflict. Uh, just recently, literally probably a week or two weeks ago, the Inter-American Court, uh, the Commission of Human Rights sent a uh, delegation to Colombia to to evaluate what had happened during the social protests. And mm -hmm. one of the fundamental recommendations that they made was that there should be a police reform and that the police should be moved out of the Ministry of Defence and into the Ministry of the Interior. The Colombian government has resisted even talking about police reform until now, but the situation, I think, w w generated such a massive outcry 
I mean, you're talking about, I mean, the UN so far has verified 56 people killed during mm. these protests. Mm. Um, 54 were protesters, two were police officers. If you look at what NGOs are saying, they're saying 77 people were killed, um, 76 or 77 people were killed during the during the protests. And 45 of those were as a direct result of um, of the police. So, I mean, this, these are huge numbers and it really signals a need for police reform. So, it's the first time we've heard that the Colombian government even uh, begin to talk about it. So, that's positive that they recognise that this, mm -hmm. this needs to be addressed. But the problem is that that they're not suggesting you move the police out of the Ministry of Defence. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. If you don't move them out of the Ministry of Defence, I think that you don't have a possibility of a new doctrine, new protocols, uh, training for mm -hmm. citizen security. It's, it's not possible uh, to do that because they're, they're in a department that has a completely different doctrine. And also because um, the changes that they're suggest uh, the government's suggesting are mainly, I think, cosmetic, although mm -hmm. there are one or two things that are positive within mm -hmm. it, but they're mainly co cosmetic. But even the things that they're suggesting that could be effective won't be effective whilst it's under the mm -hmm. Ministry of, De of Defence. Yeah. You, you need a different overall doctrine, a mm -hmm. different way of actually operating for the police force for the, uh, these other things to come into play. And it's something that the Colombian government won't engage with. It was extremely angry about the um, Inter-American Commission suggesting it, I think, mm -hmm. too. So it, it had a very negative reaction to it. So we, this is this is the difficulty. There are certain structural things that need mm -hmm. to change in order to advance the peace process, and that's that is getting bogged down because of those at the moment. Thank you, Louise, for your very informative uh, answer about this. Um, I was actually going to ask you what. What was you know what were your thoughts on police reform, but also on the military reform? Because the case in Colombia, the military is involved with civilians a lot due to the the conflict, and and it has been involved in the false positives as well. But I assume that if there's nothing being done in particular with the security forces, with the police, um, then less probably with the military. I assume. Yes, I, I think I think that there is a yes. I think your the answer to that question is yes. I think you have to you have to see that some real action is taken in terms of the police. Separate the two services and then look at what you really need to be doing in terms of the army as well, because mm -hmm. there does need to be a mm -hmm. reform there. But you know, what I think is also key in this scenario is the transitional justice system. Mm -hmm. Mm. So basically, Colombia's transitional justice system, in terms of macro cases, um, mm -hmm. has one uh, in relation to the army, which is on the extrajudicial executions that I mentioned at the beginning mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. this interview. And they have documented over 6,000 extrajudicial executions in an eight-year period, mm. which is an incredible number mm. of of extrajudicial executions by the army in eight years over 6,000 mm -hmm. people I think 6,400 and something and um, so in that sense uh, 
is very important that the those responsible within the army tell the truth yeah and yeah and, and take the punishment and that they're punished for what they've done mm-hmm. in the sense that it's um it's up to seven years this would give a really important sign to the rest of the army that it needs it needs to reform it needs to look mm-hmm. at what's happened through the conflict mm-hmm. and it needs to take to learn the lessons yes but instead of having a very positive reaction to this the Colombian government basically said that the the army had done uh, done its patriotic duty I mean mm-hmm. it's yeah, when you've got these kinds yeah. of statements being made and people saying, you know, uh, we have mm-hmm. to be grateful to the army, mm-hmm. they defended the patria, all this sort of mm-hmm. thing, this really does not help the situation and it does not help to see the reforms, the changes in, no, it's not just reforms, is it? It's the changes in attitudes that yeah. you have to generate and to bring about. Sorry about my phone, it's driving me nuts. I can't see. <laughs> <laughs> Don't throw it out the window. <laughs> yes, I find a way to turn this off. There, I was hoping it won't happen again. Yeah, so, so it's a, you, on the one hand, you need a change in doctrine, protocols, etc., in mm-hmm. a reform, but you need changes in attitude. Yes. Now, I have Definitely. to say that. A lot of work at one stage was being done around this, trying to generate from within the armed forces, or security forces, army and police, to to change attitudes. But um, I think with the change of government, all of that kind of mm-hmm. was redressed, really. Mm-hmm. So you, President Santos appointed somebody to the head of the army who was in favour of the peace process, etc. But there was a change at the head of the army when President Duque came in and it was somebody who was not in favor of the -hmm. the peace process. So when you start to make changes at these high levels, which which indicate a particular way of thinking, I think that's that's very dangerous because that filters down. So whilst you have to think of reform, you also have to think of change of attitude. And I think that's where transitional justice is absolutely Mm -hmm. essential because it helps to change the attitudes of those within the service, but also to highlight Mm -hmm. to ordinary citizens that this kind of behavior is not acceptable when you're, you know, even if you're in uh, uh, fighting an internal conflict, Mm -hmm. it's not acceptable. You have to respect uh, humanitarian law, even in these circumstances, in, in these circumstances, um, and certainly uh, in terms of the human rights violations, these are not expected in any war. The kind of violations of extrajudicial executions mm-hmm. or false positives, like killing just ordinary citizens and dressing them up as combat gear, suggesting mm-hmm. that they were yeah, yeah, it's uh, terrible. You know, we've. Yeah, this is this is really a, such a sad situation. Um, we've seen in Iraq how um, central governments can be so hamstrung by so many different competing interests that take on a kind of international um, reach as well. You know, so that there there's so many different 
regional and global powers interested either geostrategically mm-hmm. or for resources in Iraq, that it's it's almost impossible for the central government to function at times, particularly if there are demands for change. And so mm-hmm. we saw in Iraq in 2019, we just had a guest on our podcast talking about um, these social protests also in Iraq, which were stunning because they caught across uh, sectarian divides, which mm-hmm. and and women were very represented in them. So they really, the state must have seen that this was an enormous threat, in a sense, to business as usual, because you had people coming together across these divides that had kind of ensured that certain interests would stay in power for so long. And so the response was to kill, I think it was over 800, seven, over 700 mm-hmm. people Yes, um, in these protests in Iraq, um, which shows how, in a sense, successful the protests were to send a message, but also how ruthless states can become when they feel that the status quo is, mm-hmm. is challenged. And... You know, there were, it's not clear because there hasn't been any investigation, uh, but there were suggestions that, you know, certain regional players in Iraq, I mean, pardon me, in the Middle East were behind these uh, sniper killings of so many protesters. And I'm wondering if there's something similar in, in Colombia. Are there international players there that whose policies or interests in Colombia are are having a negative impact on the government's ability to embrace reform. Can I add to that question, Louise? I I actually... Sorry, sorry, Louise. Can I add to that question? How is the... Something that with Elisa's comment just made me think of as well is how is the social situation? How is the society? How divided Mm -hmm. is society Mm -hmm. regarding the conflict in Colombia and the peace process and, you know, the overall situation? Okay, right. Um, In terms of international interest, I think it's, it's a really interesting question, this, because... I actually think that the Colombian government is not hampered by international interests in the main, right? Except it, yeah, except there are certain pressures, right? So, for example, during the protests, there were blockades of the road. And these blockades of the road affected multinational corporations they were also they also did affect uh, communities as well but they were a way of the protesters really calling attention to the situation because they the, these are very visible because they're stopping commercial mm-hmm. traffic and there was a tremendous pressure on the government to address these roadblocks by multinational companies and corporations. So um, in that sense, you you did have, and, and that became a very big bone of contention, even mm. in, the, in the talks with the protesters that they had, the dialogues that they had with the protesters, the government was insisting, insisting that it was a red line, that, the, that before any dialogues, they, they had to remove these roadblocks. Wow. Uh, and, People were equally entrenched on the other side saying that, that they weren't going to. But there was a huge pressure on the government that they get to get these moved. Mm-hmm. 
there's also been um, talked about the fact that there was pressure on the government by the companies to bring about this tax reform too mm. and uh, and also by international financial institutions who were saying that Colombia needed this tax reform so in these in these sorts of ways yes and for example um, the the situation I was talking to you about Cerrojón uh, before and about the companies not for, not uh, fulfilling what the constitutional court had ordered uh, two if not all three of these multinational companies I think it is all three BHP, Anglo-American and Glencore have all taken Colombia to uh, to the investment tribunal sorry I forgot the oh. word for a minute the investment tribunal uh, and as you know these these uh, do often award huge sums of money to companies and they were saying that they haven't been able to expand the mine uh, be well because of the constitutional court rulings because of uh, various uh, yeah the but, but because of various various things uh, related to those rulings, they hadn't been able to expand the mind as they wanted, so it was interfering with their... I'm, I'm really summarising this very uh, succinctly, mm -hmm. but also because most of the information that they've put before the tribunals, of course, is secret. You can mm -hmm. only get at it if, under certain circumstances, so it's very difficult to know all the ins and outs, but the overall view is that it's because they haven't been able to expand the mind in the way which they wanted, therefore it's invested, it's impacted on their investments. So these are ways that uh, they, they're used across the world, it's not just because Colombia is in a, a country in conflict, right, but this yeah. kind of pressure really exists over governments. And this is what chills really important legislation mm. are these kinds of investment agreements that you have in free trade agreements and in bilateral investment agreements, which prove to be extremely problematic, I think, in terms of human and environmental rights. Mm -hmm. So, so mm -hmm. yeah, so it's not it's not out of the not things that are out of the ordinary. As to your question about the polarization arena, I think that um, this is one of the really major difficulties in Colombia is the increased polarization in the country in relation to the peace accord. And certainly the no campaign did not help this polarization. So instead of being a time when you were trying to, well, the church, the Catholic church and um, other organizations in Colombia were really trying to bring people together. Certainly when they did, uh, for example, victims delegations to the peace talks, before those delegations went, they had workshops and things where they actually heard from one another like victims of the FARC, victims of the FARC guerrilla, the left-wing guerrilla groups, so victims of the right-wing paramilitary groups, victims of the army. They all heard from one another and began to understand that they, they shared a lot in common, wow. even though, yeah, so this was really yeah. positive. But then when you had the no campaign, it just polarized people again, which, mm -hmm. you know, instead of all building on all that bringing together through the negotiations, you ended up 
polarizing situation and certainly the levels of violent police violence really really has um, um, caused a crisis of confidence I think in the government uh, I mean it's just exacerbated all the negative things that you don't want in a peace building context really it has also the uh, president Duque's um, ratings in the polls are the lowest he's ever he's ever had mm. I think probably have ever been in Colombia for a president probably as a result of the policing of the of the uh, social protests but it has it has polarized people's thinking um, and what I have to say is that um, really the former president Uribe under whose um, governance uh, administration the um, the 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 six thousand extrajudicial killings happened, which was uh, President Uribe. Really, he's been behind using social media, etc. Mm. Really polarizing the situation terribly. Uh, really engaging through Twitter and so you know some terrible ways of which it's complete polarization. And certainly when the case uh, of the 6,400 extrajudicial killings was announced uh, by the transitional justice system. He led real attacks saying, "You have to. De- we have to defend uh, those who defended the patria and all of this kind of thing, which was really, again, further polarizing the situation. So, uh, yeah. So it's very, it's very concerning, really, when people are doing this. Equally concerning, I think, is the fact that the two the two candidates you had in the last election really one was of of uh, the far right one was the far left and so this this was another problem the the middle road candidates were were not the people who were in contention in the second round mm-hmm. um and what colombia really needs is somebody who could really draw the country back together you don't need somebody on far right or far left really right now when you're trying yeah. to build peace yeah Special because mm. inevitably they will have a polarizing discourse if it's yes. on yeah. far exactly. extreme. Exactly. Yeah. And that's very problematic yeah. in terms mm. of, you know, like social reconciliation and the transitional justice process, as you mentioned. The, the, yeah. the lack of support of a big part of society to the process prevents it, delegitimizes it a bit as well and also prevents yes. for the for a, a positive outcome in the long term. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's the problem. Hmm. How does one, so how does one work for peace in such a situation? What are, what are what's the work that you're doing and what are sort of the principles that one has to keep in mind in order to continue to go forward even amongst so many setbacks and uh, disappointments <laughs> and problems. Yeah, no, it is a good question. Mm-hmm. And also because I think that, you know, the Colombian Peace Accord is quite an amazing document if you take a look at it. It's a, it's a document that's really about good governance, mm-hmm. yeah, that really seeks to address some of the root causes of the conflict. So, Colombia... I don't know, I don't think all peace processes are in this advantageous situation. Colombia has a document where the consultations happened with civil society, 
They brought in experts between, obviously, you had the FARC, uh, the warring parties involved, but you did have a great input from civil society. And it's a peace accord with a gender perspective and an ethnic mm. an ethnic chapter, right? So you, you have an amazing document there that was, yeah, as I say, had wide range of consultation. And I think that all of the organizations that I work with, the communities that I work with, they're all saying, if we're to see sustainable peace, you have to fully implement the peace accord. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think it has a blueprint for going mm. forward, a blueprint that was agreed by Colombia. And the inter interesting thing is, is that I think that they used international experts to come in and to tell them about what had worked in other processes, but the whole process was held by the Colombians themselves, right? So it's a purely mm -hmm. Colombian document, piece that's of piece good. accord. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it gives real legitimacy to its to to the document and to the you mm -hmm. know to its what should be its implementation. So this is where we focus. We focus on how can we support, encourage, promote the actual implementation of mm -hmm. the peace accord. Mm -hmm. And you have to think that groups are working all over Colombia from uh, small Afro-Colombian community, indigenous groups, peasant farmer groups. Um, you've got at the national level, lawyers, uh, transitional justice. Mm -hmm. All over the country, people are working to try to achieve this. And I think if Colombia could get a government that was behind the implementation of the peace accord, you would just make so many great strides forwards in terms of uh, what's possible in Colombia. Right now, I know that, that uh, communities are suffering ter terrible violence, particularly in the, in the rural areas. And I think that Unfortunately, we've seen there's this mixture not only of violence uh, but also of illicit economies, which are mm. of themselves generate violence in the rural areas. And uh, the Colombian ombudsman recently said that um, that there were organised crime groups that were <coughs> regional, national, and international. And I think. Uh, we're just seeing like really international uh, drug trafficking groups in, in Colombia. Um, and this is really important that it's not allowed to go any further because it's one thing to have national trafficking groups who have an investment in the society themselves, whatever that might be, you know, positive thing. But they have an investment in Colombia. But if you start to get international organized crime, they have no investment whatsoever in Colombia. And they will really complicate the situation. So I do think that there's really a lot of hope. I think there's a huge number of people willing to risk a huge amount in order to try to move the country forward in terms of the implementation of the peace accord. And this is this is something that's very positive. And that uh, that's the area in which we work. We try to also leverage international support for the implementation of the peace accord and particularly for the support of civil society organizations and communities. And this is because civil society organizations and communities are really able to integrate at a very grassroots level these agreements 
And whilst it's very important to have national policy, it's also extremely important to have the, the these policies, the peace accord agreements being implemented from the grassroots upwards as well. And I think that's that's when you begin to see change really happening. Um, yeah, and I think right now what you're seeing is that all of these groups and communities are what keeping the peace accord alive, really, and trying to push forward on its implementation. Thank you, Louise. That's, um, I think that's, um, that's very interesting and that's very hopeful as well, because when in such a situation of conflict, and this is what happened to us in Iraq, although it's different, you know, it's very difficult to compare, but although different, one has to cope with this, the the negative scenario and to con to have hope in that eventually the work that everybody's doing will have a positive outcome. So I think that's very, very important. Thank you, Luis, one more time for being here. It was such a pleasure and to see you after so long for me in particular. And uh, but to be somehow part of this of this podcast that wants to bring some awareness about the different conflicts around the world and how to prevent future conflicts, genocide and other mass atrocities. So we, your words of hope for our, the work we do, the work you do and the work of many working for peace in the world is just a way to end this podcast. So thank you so much. And we'll have you, you maybe in a month or so. Thank you very much. And I look forward to that and uh, look forward to listening to your other podcasts. So thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's lovely to meet you, Lisa, and to see you again, Irina. Thank yeah. you. Bye Thank bye. you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye.